I think that there are these inspirational goals. There's things like, you know, going to the moon. Like we didn't go to the moon because we had to fix some problem. We went to the moon because we could, and it was just extraordinary, and we knew we were capable of it. And I feel like we've lost a little bit of that, and we need to get it back. Otherwise, we will misunderstand what we're really about. I think I think a lot for some reason about ants because they're just it's just incredible like how complex their life is and how they you know find some leaf on a particular tree and they cut it out the right size and balance it on a certain gravity back and they go back and they plant the leaf so it grows mushrooms later and they do it all without a single instruction from anything. We always move kind of towards a better world. Like we, we somehow elevate upward always. And I just I feel like we're not just going to become powerful and smart. We're going to become really good and great and proud of what we became. David Roberts, what an honor. You are the closest thing in my network, I think, to James Bond. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or not. <laughs> but what's what's your background, just briefly? I'm like an old James Bond, <laughs> <laughs> Sean Connery one. Um, that would that would be my choice if I had to pick. Yeah, I guess he is kind of older now. I think. Yeah. Uh, what's my background? I trained as a technologist, at MIT doing AI and biocomputer engineering. When most people thought that was kind of quackery. And then I served in the government for a long time. And I did a little investment banking with Goldman Sachs. And then I went to Silicon Valley. Spent some time there with the startup after 9-11. I actually went back into the service again. And then I heard about Singularity University, and I was in a very stressful job for about five years. And so I, then I took the summer off, and I went. And then I went back into service, and then I took the summer off again, and then I went back into service. And then my commander was sort of, okay, you can't just keep taking summers off. <laughs> Everybody else was running faster than you by then. <laughs> so I said, well, I'm going to get out if I can't take it off. And I think they didn't think I would, but I did. I got out. And then ran the graduate studies program at Singularity University for a while. And now I've focused 100% of my time in trying to help leaders understand how pressing some of our problems are and that they can actually make an extraordinary difference because of the positions and the resources and, and the decision-making that they have. Right. I chair one qubit. Right now it's the leading quantum computing software company in the world. And I spend time doing a lot of other smaller things. Yeah. So, and 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 quantum computing, obviously, a lot of people talk that about that as being the next big uh, billion-dollar industry in it, software. It's, it's going to be uh, massively impactful in ways that I think we have not begun to fully even comprehend. Google last month announced that uh, in about two hundred seconds, running multiple quantum computing calculations, they were able to do what would take the world's leading supercomputer 10,000 years to do. So those kinds of things, we just, we call them intractable, where we just think that they will not be solved in our lifetime. 
And Sunna will be able to do that, and it's going to be really an interesting future as a result of that. While we scroll through Instagram, we can just solve those. <laughs> right? Yeah. But so a lot of those things, I think, are hard to comprehend for people, just like previous. I mean, electricity must have sure. been really hard to fathom, and uh, with the internet or wireless internet. Uh, I remember I met some really smart people from or students from Stockholm School of Economics where I lectured uh, just in 2007, I think it was. Yeah. And they were questioning my assumption that everybody would have access to mobile internet. And I mean, they're super smart. They are have a lot of knowledge. But it's yeah. so hard sometimes to see beyond the horizon. Yeah. I mean, we have monkey brains still. You know, I think I think a lot for some reason about ants because they're just, it's just incredible how much stuff they do, like how complex their life is and how they, you know, have this giant underground city with different rooms and they, you know, find some leaf on a particular tree and they cut it out the right size and balance it on a certain gravity back and they go back and they plant the leaf so it grows mushrooms later and they do it all without a single instruction from anything. That we know of. And uh, that we know of and that it's in all in their little pin-sized brain and and I just think, you know what, no matter how smart they are, they just will never understand the internet. Right. They'll never understand us. Like they'll never, they just can't. And I think we're like that right now. Yeah. And they say the same thing about us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but like we, we, we have a three pound monkey brain and we're trying to comprehend a future, even just 50 years from now, that's I think completely incomprehensible to us. I mean, it's easy to validate that theory just looking back a few years and seeing what was incomprehensible at the time. Yeah, but it'll be even more different than that because looking back, we still just had this brain. And so if you came from 70 years ago and you came in today, it would take a while. But, you know, you give me a, a week or something and we could get you up to speed. In the future... The tech and us fuse together because artificial intelligence is exponential, meaning it's doubling in its price performance. And it's not – the price isn't changing much. It's just doubling in its performance. In fact, some people say moving at four or five times the rate of Moore's law. And so in the future, unenhanced intelligence will not be able really to comprehend. So no, even if someone brought you into the future, if you weren't going to be – have this enhanced intelligence, you're – three-pound monkey brain just wouldn't get it. Yeah, much like we are today with cell phones, I would argue, right? I mean, uh, the things we do yeah, with them. Yeah, a little them. bit, right? Like a little, uh, that would be a harder one for people to get. Like, oh, I got this thing and I just access information. Maps of the entire yeah, planet. Hard. And, uh, you know, pictures of every street. I mean, for for a person from the 20s or 40s, or, you know, that must have been incredibly hard yeah. to just to think of, I guess we had Inspector Gadget with the Apple Watch yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. But Well, and it, and it is very likely that in 30 years you're, I don't know if it'll be a phone, but you know, there'll be something that you're in constant communication with that is a lot smarter than you. Yeah, that you don't realize that you're maybe carrying around consciously because it's just augmenting whatever. Yeah, and that's when, that one's hard for people to get. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to see beyond the horizon. And I think I, you spoke today, at, uh, you had a talk at Time, and uh, I listened to you and you talked about how uh, we have these great UN goals uh, for making the planet better, which are all fine and good. 
but you also were talking about that you wrote, you have just made your own list of inspirational, the 17 yeah. inspirational goals. And to, to, to that effect, I mean, just if you can't understand or have any concept of what's going to happen beyond the horizon, playing is not a bad, bad strategy, right? Because so you're, you're going to get to another, you're going to jump to another rock from which you can see beyond the horizon for a little bit longer. Yeah. I think I think we've been caught up in fixing problems. I mean, we do need to fix problems, but what are we fixing them for? I mean, imagine we fix them all. Now what are we supposed to do? So I, I think that there are these inspirational goals. There's things like, you know, going to the moon. Like we didn't go to the moon because we had to fix some problem. We went to the moon because we could, and it was just extraordinary, and we knew we were capable of it. And I feel like we've lost a little bit of that and we need to get it back. Otherwise, we will misunderstand what we're really about. Yeah, I think the, the people that uh, back way back when, when I went to, uh, to, um, um, to college and I learned about technology, uh, I had these teachers and they were teaching me agile methodology. And they said, uh, well, you have the things, the problems that you know that you have, but you also, there are also things that you don't know that you don't know. And I think what we're talking about solving problems, that's solving the problems that we know we don't know. But then there are the problems we don't know that we don't know. And we can never um, define that problem. Yeah, but there are things like, you know, if you, if you climb Mount Everest, you're not solving any problems. Right. But, you know, I, I, I think that we're beings and there's like this spiritual part to us too. And... I think we are sort of spiritual beings first, <laughs> if that makes sense. And so if we always focus on fixing problems, I think we will not really be fulfilled. And almost all the problems, like the SDGs, we could actually easily, and I say easily meaning if we all chose to do it and, and to you know be compassionate enough, we could actually fix all 17 of the SDGs within 15 years for sure. Actually, maybe even within 10. And then what? Yeah, right? Because we should have goals too that are just inspiring, that, that make our life extraordinary because we can. We can have extraordinary lives and we can do extraordinary things together and we should absolutely do that also because that, that, I think, is our destiny. Our destiny is not to fix the problems. We have to fix the problems anyway. Our destiny is, you know, what what is the what is humanity capable of? Yeah, and it's, in a way, it's it's all is relative, right? The problems that we have, it's always going to be kind of a moving target. Yeah, absolutely. It's all relative, but but I I think we can all kind of agree that to feel meaningful and have a meaningful life, you want to move in a direction. You want to evolve, right? Yeah. And most of the problems we have, bizarrely, are not even the problems we think. Like if we think, you know, well, there's a there's a food shortage. It's like, no, we've actually had enough food to feed everyone on the planet at least one and a half times over for at least 70 years in a row. We just never chosen really to do it. Like we, we've had, there's enough clean water in the world for, you know, hundreds, thousands of times the number of people in the world. Like there really is an enormous amount of clean water without even negatively impacting the environment. But we don't distribute clean water. So it's a, it's a different problem. It's a problem, I think, of leadership, not 
actually necessarily of technology. You can also solve it maybe with technology. But that's, there's not a, the scarcity is not real. And so there's, a, it can also be solved through a different kind of leadership. And that for me is very inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, and, and I think you're onto something real with when you start thinking about solving all the problems and how terrible that would be if that ended up happening. And I, maybe these uh, goals that we have are um, beacons or, or some kind of, uh, yeah, be, I guess beacons to guide us in some direction that is uh, meaningful. Just like I think our egos, our perceptions of being an entity of our own is also kind of in a way... Um, uh, and, and I, as I see it, an illusion, a very useful illusion that makes us uh, create, uh, um, make decisions that kind of drive towards these beacons. And we, sometimes I, I try to explain this, this to people by describing artificial intelligence where you have nodes in a network and it's kind of uh, ironic that I'm using artificial intelligence to describe our real intelligence, but it's a good model because it's a model, it's a map. Yeah. Right, so so uh, in that sense, when you, when you start looking at it that way, it's all relative, and you're kind of setting up these beacons to have a, you know, a direction to travel and make your life meaningful. Well, that's kind of beautiful because then you're all kind of part of one big life. Yeah, uh, you have to have the illusion of, of of you, and I have the illusion of me, and but we're all really the same big big life, right? And and in fairness too, I think our greatness doesn't come always just from doing great things, which is like the inspirational goals, right? The, when you fix problems, greatness can come from having a really extraordinary problem. <laughs> sort of like the fighter that just gets beat down and is knocked out and then, you know, their eye opens up and they get back up and then they win. I mean, that that is greatness too. And so in some ways, I think we're blessed to have extraordinary problems, none of which I know to be unsolvable. And so we're blessed because we get massive problems, all of which are really solvable. Yeah, that, that was an inspirational part of your uh, speech today, I think, too, when you talked about how, because I think as, as these problems that we have, it's great that we have them, otherwise we're, our lives would be miserable. But you talked about the, the uh, attitude towards them. So have an attitude of these are all solvable. These are all, they can be chunked up into pieces that are consumable and... and uh, just kind of go at them and start solving them. And uh, I think a lot of people look at these goals and say, well, or, or these beacons or whatever we call them and say that these are too big. I, I'll just, and I won't even try because I'm not smart enough or I'm not good enough in some sense. And just shifting the attitude to being uh, one of solvable, you know, attractive problems. No, that's exactly sadness. right. Most people, most people, think they can't make a difference. And because they think it, it becomes true. And the only people who make a difference are the people who think they can make a difference. And so the minute you've internalized that you can make a difference, you find yourself doing things to make a difference. But the first part, the inspiration, the belief, has to change. And, and yes, that that needs to be true because otherwise you wouldn't, you wouldn't try. There's no point of innovation if you're a pessimist, right? Yeah, they don't <laughs> probably do very much. <laughs> no. So optimism is a actually that's that's uh, I think that has not been 
maybe talked about enough. There's this optimistic thinking kind of makes yeah. you feel good. But if you if you think about it in, in the in the context of innovation and 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 evolution and development, then optimism is really the driving force that we have. Yeah, and I, and I would describe optimism as having an idea, a rather crisp idea of the future that's better than the present. And so I think really good leaders are very good at creating these very crisp visions in the future. And then people can get so connected to that vision that it feels real for them. And so then once it feels real for them, they don't want it taken away. See, people, I think people um, have much more energy to not lose something that they've already had than they do to get something that they don't. Which would be the case for visualization of goals, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. No one, I didn't, you know, when I was in high school, we didn't have cell phones. So I, I mean, no one, it hadn't been invented yet. And so no one missed their cell phone. No one wanted their cell phone. No one, but now if you tried to, you know, take my phone away, I'd <laughs> rather I'd, lose a hand. It would like, it would be pretty rough. On, <laughs> yeah. on my life. I'm putting my notes away. We're having so much more. This idea of how do we create, so there's two parts, I think. There's this part of one, creating, inevitable visions of the future. And then there's this second really important part that I think a lot of leaders miss, which is creating this very clear path to get there. It's like one, one is Oz and the other is the yellow brick road, the curvy road to get there. And if you just create the vision a lot of people actually are not inspired by that because they don't understand how we get there. So if you talk about going to the moon, you talk about flying cars, say today, people just think, well, oh, we've been thinking about flying cars for decades and we're no closer to it. But that, that actually isn't quite true. And so when you show them like, oh, actually, no, drones, if you build them bigger, become passenger drones. And that's very realizable. And we're going to have that really soon. In fact, we have it today because we have drones that carry the weight. They just We just don't really allow them to carry people yet. But it's, it's here. It's coming. And once they realize that, then they start to do all kinds of things. They do startups and they start getting prepared. They start buying you know the property on top of buildings. And so hope ha happens in the present because there's a very crisp vision and there's a very clear path to get there. And I think when leaders do both of that, it doesn't have to be the same leader, but when both of those pieces are there, people behave differently immediately. Yeah, I, I've, I know that I used to be in my youth when I was, this is many years ago now, but I used to be a professional wakeboarder. And, ah, nice. and I, I, uh, I know at the time and nobody could, I remember, I remember a time where nobody could do a flip, an inverted trick <laughs> and nobody could. And suddenly one guy did, and then it took a week and everybody did. You know, there's something to that as well that you see, well, it's possible. Yeah. My father growing up wanted to uh, break the four-minute mile. And uh, and then he went uh, to uh, Oxford and Cambridge where the guy actually ended up like kind of breaking the four-minute mile in London. And then like clearly once he did, then everybody did. And I think this idea is a very, very powerful one. And it's kind of, it's a, I think it is connected to this idea of the placebo pill too where – you know, the placebo effect is very real. I mean, it's scientifically measured to be real. If you give me the pill and I think it's going to help me, somehow 
I get helped by it. So I, more recently, I've been fascinated by this in the quantum space. So there's some really fascinating stuff around quantum science that says, you know, that if an observer looks at something, like it's not just that they observe it, like the thing is actually now different. The real physical thing behaves differently because a person is going to like measure it. I mean, it's just, it's a strange universe we live in. And now I actually think from things like that, the mystery of this universe to me is so much more exciting, so much more exciting because I realize this universe is so strange. Like it, it's it's almost like it's designed for us. Yeah, and and in fact, maybe it's not strange. It's just that we don't get it yet. And yeah, true. I mean, <laughs> oh right, like we're just, it's just with a three pound monkey brain staring <laughs> yeah, exactly. and wondering how does this car work? You know, it just seems like magic. Yeah, right. No. And and I looked at for me actually it was a quite a profound moment uh, that where quantum physics changed my life or my outlook on life. But I, I've always been kind of an atheist and, and uh, you know, I, I don't know what I believe now. But I, but I do know that I'm humble. And I used to be so sure, like, yeah, telepathy, that's not, that's just not possible. And somebody said, yeah, I can feel that my daughter's ill or, yeah, sure. You know, I didn't believe it. And then quantum physics came around and suddenly, oh, you can have these entangled particles and, you know, they can be on opposite sides of the universe and, and, and carry information instantly. I was like, well, that's then that's telepathy, it, or at least it's 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 provides some credible yeah. path to telepathy, right? Yeah, and you know we enter the world dumb as children, and so we just end up accepting everything as normal. And I I, I try to think sometimes about well, what would it be like if I tried to think about if I didn't know anything, and. You know, I don't get very far down that thinking, but it is like some thoughts where I, where they come to mind and I'm just like, this is so ridiculous. Like the idea that we, say, live underneath a giant thermonuclear continuous explosion and we just go outside and dance around in the sun. Like, like some stuff is so crazy. And so... I'm I'm really fascinated now by the universe and and when you said you know you're humble I think humility equals intelligence because humility means that you're curious because you don't think you know everything and curiosity equals intelligence because people who are curious keep learning and so I've sort of realized in the last several years that there's certain character traits that are hugely impactful in a person's life, like humility and compassion and courage, and, and very few of them actually, that have absolutely extraordinary impacts on people's lives. And so I'm sort of convinced now that like our entire education system is off. <laughs> yes, I mean, just that simple little thing for me that I was so sure and then I was shown this one thing that's actually only happened to me once in my life, I think. I was shown this one thing where I just realized, well, science now shows me that I didn't know what science was. And I, and uh, what else do I don't know? And what else do I have to be humble to, you know? And, uh, and the education system is not built for that. No, and, and it's so consistent now everywhere that I actually think in the last 30, 40 years, so... Uh, you know, in the 20s and 30s, we made so many breakthroughs 
And we actually haven't made a lot of those kinds of breakthroughs recently. And I think the reason that we haven't made a lot of those breakthroughs is because we have um, standardized our learning so much, where we all sort of learn the same thing and we all kind of believe it. And so it becomes very, very difficult to think outside of these frameworks now. Yeah, I, I saw a picture, I think it was Bill Gates, uh, who had a map of Nigeria. And he, he drew, drew um, it into squares and he said that, well, uh, we're trying to vaccinate all these people and, and we have problems because uh, in, in, the in the borders between these squares, people are responsible, doctors are responsible for their square. But in the borders, everybody thinks that somebody else is responsible. So they don't really, uh, nobody really takes responsibility. And I think there's something similar happening, happening in science uh, that we have these extremely good uh, quantum physicists. And then in another square, we have great designers. They don't really, in the borderland there, there's... No, where, are the, where are the translators? We need the translators, right? To tell, and I think this actually storytelling is, uh, is talked about as being important sometimes, but I, it's almost like that's the API because it needs to be simple enough for somebody who doesn't know anything about quantum physics to understand and somebody who doesn't know anything about design to understand and they can talk and they can in innovate together. And the stories are kind of that glue because it's, it, it's, I, I want to hear them because they excite me, even though they're simple. Most of the breakthroughs that we uh, have experienced in the last few decades have all been at the intersections of these categories. Because, you know, the categories, we sort of explored the category and it's these gaps between the category where everything new is kind of happening. And so um, I think it's just, it's going to be such a fascinating next 20 years. Yeah. But it ties in also to what we talked about before that it's going to be harder to, for one person, you know, to, to, to know a, a lot of different things and, or at least for us now to understand how that will work because we'll have augmented brains maybe in some way. But uh, if we get to a place where it's, it's so advanced or so much knowledge necessary for, to, to master one field, then how, how, will, we, how will we be able to, to innovate across these, uh, across these areas? Yeah. Um. And you mean, how do we innovate in the gaps? Yeah, I mean, if yeah. you have a great musician, for example, who yeah. happens to add the perfect ingredient to a medicine for some reason that we don't know. And actually, that is happening. They, they have now research on Alzheimer's disease where they use uh, yeah. waves uh, and, and frequencies, uh, which you know, can stem from the music industry, basically. Yeah. And, and, you know, how do, we, how do we get those people to co-innovate? You know? Yeah. Well, and that's what's so strange, right, is these categories that we have of the world, they don't really exist. <laughs> it's just our brains tried to dumb it down in such a way that we, uh, we can comprehend it. And as a result of that, it creates all the limitations. I actually think that happens even at a non-scientific human level. Like humans will categorize even other humans and things to try and comprehend things. But... You know, if you think about really extraordinary intelligences, like think beyond, well, what, what is it like if you don't have a three-pound monkey brain? What if you have a really smart brain that's a hundred times smarter, a thousand times smarter than a monkey? You know, that brain probably isn't going to be categorizing the same way. You know, like a, a dog probably categorizes all vehicles as vehicles. But for us, it's like, no, you can have a truck and you can have a... 
a car and you can have, you know, but the dog is just like all sort of one thing. Have you ever done a safari, by the way? I just yeah, I yeah. just got done with safari and it's such a strange thing because the animals can't see you when you're in the vehicle, even though it's an open air vehicle because they just can't comprehend that something with wheels is like, like has people in it. Like they just... They just can't comprehend it. Yeah. And how much is the, of that is going on for us with other right. concepts? Right, that's what I'm always right? thinking. I sit there and because, and, you know, you drive like right by a cheetah or a lion and you're in the vehicle and, you know, as long as you don't stand up in the vehicle and stuff, they just, they're just like, that's just some other weird thing that's not like us, that's not an animal. And I just think, what things are like that for us? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, there are also a lot of frequencies that, frequencies that we don't pick up with our kind of simple sensors that we have. Yeah. Um, but I think also one thing about the three pound, is it a three pound brain? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, yeah, it's a three pound yeah, brain. The monkey brain. Yeah. It's a 10 pound head, but the brain's like three. Yeah. I would, I would argue that there's a lot of evidence that we have a much larger brain. Uh, obviously, since we have created all these things uh, together as a huge network of people that somehow interconnect, they somehow co-create, they somehow... Yeah collaborate and and that's one i mean if we were talking about a computer now right. and we don't say that that computer has you know 12 cores so that's 12 computers yeah you know well and so much of our information now is not stored in our brain right it's stored in these machines and we're we're this convergence of these two things and um and you know very quickly the machines are just sort of storing the data right now but very quickly they won't be just storing the data, right? Like when you do an internet search, there's something actually happening. You're not just finding the data. There's this algorithm that that's looking to help you find the data. And you could never, you could never get enough humans to do that job. It would be impossible to get a bunch of humans that could do what the machines do for search. And so we've already gotten these kinds of intelligence that aren't like ours. And it's very hard for us to comprehend it. We we just use the tech. It's it's like not understanding how an engine works, but you know you step on the accelerator, the car goes. And that, I think, is what our future is very much like. It's a mistake whenever we think that the progression that we've seen in the past is sort of the progression for the future. It's not. It's it's really quite dramatic and different. And when I was, you know, little, there was no internet or anything. We just had these wired phones and, you know, my sister and I would get into arguments over how long we'd been on the phone so because there was just one. But we couldn't have comprehended that future. And now that it's happened, there's still like a part of my brain that thinks, well, that's what it's going to be like the next 20. We're going to get a couple more like big things like that. But it, it really is going to be uh, dramatic and um, the, fu- the future is not like the past. Yeah, and, and also we, ha- we have no way, I think, and that's also I think a good thing to accept that we are... We are, we are very bad at uh, thinking in exponential terms. We consider talking about it, like it's going to be very large, but when you try to think about, okay, so what is, if, if all this has just happened now, it's going to happen at an exponential rate going forward. Is not, is, we just can't. And, you know, that. even I, even, I mean, I think, you know, I was just speaking yesterday to some folks at Huawei and then we were talking about 5G. And 5G, you know, I learned like you can download an entire high-def movie, like a three-hour high-def movie in like a few seconds with 5G. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, that's, even, that's just so hard for me to comprehend because what, what will that mean? What, what does it mean? What, what, will, 
what will happen that's so different than as a result of that? And I have no doubt there'll be all kinds of things that will happen. And maybe, you know, virtual reality will just become so commonplace that it'll just be built on your phone. And just at any moment, you'll just put this thing on, you'll be somewhere else, you'll be in another life. I mean, people today, when they're in VR, they mistaken it for reality. You know, they think they're really going to get hurt or they're going to fall off the roller coaster. Or, and so that is just around the corner. Yeah. And I mean, that's 5G. When you and I sit in a vineyard in Napa Valley in 20 years time and reminiscing, talking back to when we met at, in the studio, we will laugh at that because things by then will yeah. probably be instantaneous. I know. You know, the quantum is be, will be an internet of these, uh, enta the entanglement internet, and it'll be uh, infinitely fast and infinitely, you know, just uh, everything. And we'll laugh, but we're sitting talking about, oh, it took, you know, remember when it took two seconds to download a film? So there's absolutely no doubt that that will. Right. Because some of these things are very predictable, and the uh, increase in speed and bandwidth is very predictable. Yeah. I mean, it's basically always doubling about once a year. And so we could, we could, I think, very predictably look on a chart and know what the speed is in 20 years. Yeah. And it'll be, what is that, exactly like a million times faster. So what do you think if we just bring, bring it back a little bit because we're kind of, yeah, as people <laughs> like you and I maybe do, <laughs> dive into the deep yeah. end. But what do you think just... Already today, I mean, we have these monkey brains and we have, I mean, I think I, the number I've been using, I'm not sure if we have a better one, but it's, it's a 106,000% increase in mobile data 2009 to 2022, if you look at the projection from Ericsson. Uh, and our monkey brain is going to try to compre comprehend all that. Of course, some of it is, is a resolution, but, but just the behavior is a big part of it. And that behavior just must put a huge strain on our cognitive capabilities that we have, our cognitive abilities. So one of the things that we haven't yet experienced are many of the benefits of AI. And so the kind of technology we have experienced has done two things. It makes stuff cheaper and it makes stuff more powerful. But AI does something different. And what AI does is it makes stuff easier. It's funny, three years ago I took a... Uh, I took an Uber right after the U.S. election of the president the next morning. And the driver was so excited about our new president. And I was like, okay, you know, let me, let me hear this. And he's like, you know, well, you know, I'm, I'm Russian. Your new president loves Russians. I'm totally going to be able to visit the United States. And, you know, as he's saying that, I was kind of laughing because I was thinking like, you know, that might not work out to be the way you're thinking. It might turn out to be just the opposite. It'll be even harder, right, which is what happened. Yeah. But, you know, when I was speaking to him, I said, um, how, you know, how long, you're, you're from Russia, okay, well, how long have you been a, uh, an Uber driver? And he says, five days. I was like, oh, well. And I was like, how long have you been in Denmark? And he says, a week. I was like, your first time? He's like, yeah, my first time. And I was like, do you, how much Danish do you speak? He's like, not a word. I was like, so how did you learn all the roads? He's like, I don't know any of the roads. I just do whatever Uber tells me. And it hit me that this Russian comes to Denmark, doesn't speak a word of Danish, doesn't know any of the roads, and two days after he arrives, he gets a job that he loved, obviously, and that was teaching him English and a little Danish, and he doesn't know a single road because AI gave him a job. 
AI made something that would have been so hard, so easy. See, like you and I, we'll be able, I think in 10 years, we'll be able to go to Africa with our phone and be a better doctor than you or I have today. Like our phone will do diagnoses, tell us how to like, what questions to ask and what tests to do better than any doctor you or I have today because AI will do that. And so the belief that stuff keeps getting more complex, I think is not taking into account what AI does for us, which is just the opposite. It makes things easier. And so I think we will be progressing into an easier world where people have jobs that you just couldn't imagine them doing because of their intellect. And that, I think, has been repeated in history. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's also a case for optimism. I think that having that kind of uh, outlook, we talk so much about how everything is uh, you know, going badly in different ways, and I think we're really doing ourselves a disservice. Well, there are some things that are really going quite badly, too. Of course, yeah. Uh, when we weigh those things with the progress of tech, I become quite positive. Some of them scare me because there's tipping points. Like, uh, you know, when I think about global warming, it is possible. So the Earth has been this net carbon absorber, right? So if we stop doing everything, the Earth would sort of self-correct. But now many scientists think it's become a net carbon producer. And if that's true, it's like, you know, you've tilted the chair too much and now it's racing away from you. And that actually is quite frightening because then I wonder, like, well, do we have any solution to ever bring it back in if that's happened? But the exponential nature of tech makes me very, very positive. Yeah, and, and the humans and, and places like Singularity University. I, I was interviewing a, a student from there recently who's uh, a carbon farmer. So she's actually <laughs> farming carbon now, you know? I love that. That's like the new farmer, right? Right. So she's actually making usable, stable form carbon that they use to fertilize soils and stuff. It's just, I mean, who would have thought of that? Yeah. So I think, I think I'm optimistic yeah. still. I mean, if we and if we are, that's also when we'll find the solutions because the bike will go wherever we look, kind yeah. of. You know? Yeah, that's exactly. And this idea, right? Because so many people they create fear with people around jobs and automation and I it's such a it's such a myth and I just want to discount it all the time um, you know in the 1800s we were all farmers and everyone was worried they're like oh the machines are gonna take all our and they did they took all our farming jobs but we didn't end up all jobless we ended up with a whole bunch of other jobs and I show this map of the United States and the most common job in each state in I think it's 1972 or 77. And farmer is still actually the most common job in maybe like four or five states. But the other states, it was machine operator, which obviously was machines. And the other ones were secretary, which actually was a machine. In fact, it was a machine that used to be a really big machine that took a whole bunch of people to do, to do the typesetting. And then suddenly somebody created this little one that any you know, person could just sit down and type. And so... The thing is that, that nobody knew, you know, 100 years ago what a typewriter was or what a machine operator was. And then it's really funny because in the next 25, 30 years, the most common job for almost every state was truck driver, which is what it is today. Yeah. But 150 years ago, nobody knew what a truck was. And so these the, the new thing, we can't even imagine it. Uh, man, I think we could sit around talking here for a couple of more hours. Uh, and I know there's um, there's a party we need to get to. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I and uh, right but I'm very optimistic about yeah. the future. And um, 
I, I don't have worries about tech. I do have worries about people. And so we need to get good at that. Yeah. I have worries about governance because it's all like a people thing. And we've had this very strange turn in the last few years about how our democracies work and how well they work. And so those things I think concern me, but only because of what the trend might do. But I'm, I'm super optimistic and... Uh, and, and I do think there's this other awesome thing that I've realized about the world, which is that collectively we always move kind of towards a better world. Like, like now that we've sort of eliminated or at least sort of public slavery around the world, like we're never going to go back to a world where some countries say, okay, slavery is okay here. It's illegal here. Like we, we somehow elevate upward always. So not only do we become more powerful, but I believe we become more good. And so that has me even more optimistic, not in an intellectual way, but in an emotional way about what we become. And I just, I feel like we're not just going to become powerful and smart. We're going to become really good and great and proud of what we became. That's not a bad ending to a podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's awesome thank, to be here. Thank you so much for uh, coming. Yeah, hope to talk to you soon again. I hope that too. Thank you for listening. For tickets to the event and more information about Mindburst, visit mindburst.se.